It is so good to be back with you guys. So, so good. Um, I don't have to be with Steve another week. I mean, that's right. No, no, no. I I'm not, not, don't really mean that at all. Uh, <clears throat> um, we had a w- wonderful time, and, and you'll hear uh, from that uh, in some weeks to come. <clears throat> we are continuing our work in Second Kings now. Uh, this is on page 307. Keith got us into 2 Kings last week. I, I listened on Thursday to both of Ryan's sermons and Keith's while I was gone. Uh, you guys have not been hurting since I've been gone. <laughs> Heard some wonderful, wonderful preaching. And I, I thank God for that. <clears throat> As we uh, read this, just call your attention to the sheet that was handed out. Uh, the first part, you may be able to trace this structure uh, when Elijah and Elisha go from Bethel, Jericho, Jordan, and then Elisha goes from Jordan, Jericho to Bethel, okay, backs up. Uh, one of the important things about this, as Ralph Davis points out, is that sometimes people think that the miracle of the water for Jericho and the judgment of the bears on the uh, young lads were just tacked on to this story uh, about the transfer of authority from Elijah to Elisha. But this structure shows that that's an intimate part of what the writer is doing here. He's showing that Elisha is carrying out the work of Elijah because he retraces his exact steps. And so the addition of those two things are not superfluous. They are, they're a vital part of what he's trying to show in this passage. And then you can, on your own, see the comparison of Moses and Joshua, the comparison of John and Jesus. Uh, actually, we're going to focus more on the comparison between Elijah and Elisha and Jesus and his people, okay? Both can be made, and I try to give you what... Uh, that here, and that, so that's for your, your benefit, but we just don't have time uh, for that this morning. But we'll be focusing more on the comparison of, 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 of Elijah and Jesus and then Elisha and us as disciples. So let's begin then by reading chapter 2. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out, of, came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. 
Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold... Chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces, and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent, therefore, fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. And from there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. That's the reading of God's word. Very interesting, to say the least. (laughs) Let us pray. Oh, Father, give us grace that we may know uh, your word, that we may know your glory, that we will adore you, that we will entrust ourselves to you, that we will believe in your great power that continues toward to your church. Uh, From Elijah to Elisha, from Christ to his disciples, and to each of us, to, our, to your church throughout the world, and to each one of us 
Lord, in the changing circumstances that we face, we thank you that your grace continues and your power continues and nothing can stay your hand. We ask this, Lord, for your glory and honor. Amen. We all uh, face tremendous change in so many different ways. This, this story is about that very question. How, what will God do when Elijah is gone? What will God do in the midst of what will be seen as a, a critical uh, change, a devastating change? That the mighty Elijah is gone. And so we each have to ask, how do we handle change? How do we look at it? Uh, So we're going to study how it it demonstrates the power of God that continues with Elisha. And how this previews the power of God that continues toward his people even after Christ leaves. And hopefully apply that in each one of our situations. So that... You know, when leadership changes within a church, what do we do? How do we think about it? When the political situation or economic landscape changes and sometimes falls apart, how do we view it? How do we view God's power and grace during those things? Or when it's personal, when there's divorce or abandonment or death or loss of a job or loss of a major opportunity that you completely were depending on and it's gone and gone forever or your own emotional stability or well-being or your own physical well-being is permanently uh, changed so that there may be a permanent disability for the rest of your life. How do we look at these things How do we look at the continuing power and grace of God? Now, because the end of chapter 1 could go straight into the beginning of chapter 3 in the succession of kings, it's all the more uh, obvious that he has injected this story as though to say what really is more, what is more important than the succession of kings is the succession of the prophet. And so we're going to halt our history and deal with this right here and now. And that's that's what's taken up here from the beginning words to uh, the end of the chapter. It's what happens in the succession from Elijah to Elisha. So let's dive into uh, how the writer opens up uh, and talks about this succession. Three times we hear Elijah say, stay here, right? At Gilgal, at Bethel, and at Jericho, stay here. And I think he's probably testing Elisha. You may recall when Jesus tests the Canaanite woman who comes to him to heal, that he might heal her daughter who is demon-possessed. And because she's a non-Jew, he says something that sounds just horrible to us. He said, the food is not for the dogs, it's for the children. You know, so, real encouraging first step, right? To come, to be called, you're one of the dogs, you're a non-Israelite. And yet she said very uh, wisely and, and kind of coyly, she says, uh, well, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. 
And he said, your faith is great. So Jesus was not rejecting her. He was teasing out her faith, allowing it to be demonstrated that even in the face of seeming rejection, she is putting herself in the hands of mercy and believes in that mercy. And so Elijah is testing Elisha here. Do you really want this? Are you serious about this? Are you ready for this? To take on this mantle of leadership. uh, To manage the household of God as God is calling you to do. And of course, each time, Elisha swears by an oath. As the Lord lives and even as you live, I will not leave you. And so this builds tension. Because even in the first verse, he says... Uh, He was about to take Elijah up in the whirlwind. So we know it's about to happen. And so we're building this tension. Is he going to stay with him? When is it going to happen? I love how matter of fact that first verse is. As the Lord is about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind. Elijah and Elijah. Wait, what? (laughs) This is a big thing. We just mentioned it as though, yeah, you know, this is about to happen. So then the sons of the prophets pile in on top of this, Right both in Bethel and in Jericho. And this, this kind of joins up with verse 1 about the whirlwind, about being taken up. So you just keep hearing about it and hearing about it. And I, they, they really are asking it as a desperate question, almost wringing their hands, you know, saying, do you, do you know that, that today's the day that your, your master, you're going to lose your master, you're, you're going to lose the head? You know, and, and it could have drawn him into despair himself. And I think at least by the second time, I would have answered sarcastically, yeah, I know he's going to be taken up today. You know, I just get so frustrated at these questions. But he simply says, yes, I know, keep quiet. And this probably has the sense of be still and know that God, that, that Yahweh is God. Don't worry about this. Just calm down. Uh, it's in God's hands. Let's see what God will do, that kind of attitude. Well, they then finally get to the water, and here's a recall of Moses himself, and it shows how Elisha is a kind of new Moses, because here for a second time, uh, after the Moses and Joshua cycle, the water is, is parting. And on the other side of the water... He finally says, what would you have me give you to, to Elisha? And he says, I would like a double portion of the spirit. Now, this recalls uh, Deuteronomy twenty-one seventeen, where the father would give a double portion to the firstborn son. Because the firstborn son has to have more resources to manage the household for the other children. After the father is gone. So he has a double portion of inheritance. Well, Elisha is going to manage the household of God. He's going to oversee the household of God. And so he asks for the double portion of the firstborn. And this shows Elisha's humility, right? He knows the the desperate need he has of the full equipment of God's grace. If he is going to lead God's people. And it also, of course, shows throughout this his commitment to be there when Elijah is, Elijah is caught up. As the Lord lives, I will not leave you. 
I will, I will keep myself in the way of grace. It kind of has the same feel of Zacchaeus putting himself in the way of Christ. He's putting himself in the way of grace. He will not abandon that way of grace. It shows his commitment and his hope in what God will do for him. So this is what I would call helpless, tenacious dependence. That's what we need, right? Helpless but tenacious dependence. Tenacious E, we'll call Elijah here. Elisha. So the spirit... uh, So then uh, we think here also about... The spirit of Christ, or the spirit that is given to Christ, that he gives to his people. So this is not just distant from us to watch, you know, uh, objectively this giving of the spirit. But it previews in a most wonderful way, as many things do in the Elijah-Elisha cycle, of the way Jesus will deal with his disciples. Even the call of Elisha to leave his plowing and follow Elijah uh, has, is echoed in Jesus' call of the disciples to abandon their nets or to abandon uh, the books, as it, in Matthew's case, to follow him. And so God gives his spirit, we read in John 3, without measure to the Son. He has a measureless portion of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus pours out that spirit. It is not given just to him. It is given so that he can pour it out to his church, upon his church, liberally. John said of him, I baptize with water, but he baptizes with the spirit. And Jesus could say in a most personal way, he who believes in me, John 7, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John says, he's talking about the spirit that he was going to pour out uh, after he had ascended, after his resurrection. And so here's this glorious promise that whatever Jesus has of the spirit, he will pour it out so that we each personally will experience the richness of the life of the spirit. And so, Elisha literally says here, I want a double mouthful of the Spirit. That's, that's the literal rendering of it. I want a double mouthful. I want all you can get into my mouth, right? It's like you see uh, a big piece of cake and you want this big section with the roses on it over here. And that's what he wants. He wants everything that he can have of the Spirit. And isn't it encouraging That when Jesus is speaking of prayer in Luke 11, and he has that wonderful analogy saying, if you being fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, if they ask for a fish, you won't give them a snake. If they ask for bread, you won't give them a stone. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? If, If Elijah had the hope of this, how much more is our hope that is sealed in the blood of Christ, Christ now exalted in order to pour out the Spirit upon his people. So this is a wonderful preview. And of all people, we should 
hearken to this statement in the Psalms. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Open your mouth wide that the Lord may fill you and continually equip you in every terrible, traumatic circumstance that you face with his spirit that will that means that his life will be in you to live out the life of Christ. Well, then, the great event itself, and if you saw the structure of this passage, you'd see that this is the center point of the passage, or the apex of the passage, is the appearance of the chariots. Now, some background here. Here's a few passages that talk about God's chariots. Or his riding on the clouds. What's interesting is that Baal was said to be the one that rides on the clouds. But actually Baal doesn't ride on the clouds. It's Yahweh that rides on the clouds. He rides through the heavens to your help. Through the skies in his majesty. Deuteronomy 33. Or Psalm 104. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Isaiah 19. The Lord is riding on a swift cloud. Or Psalm 68, the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. And finally in Jeremiah 4, behold, he comes up like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. And so with the appearance of the whirlwind and the fire and the chariots and horses, there's no doubt that the king of Israel, the king of the armies of Israel has come on the scene. Now, first of all, he didn't actually ride in the chariot. The chariot separated them and then he was caught up in the whirlwind. That's just a little technical detail. Okay. Now, the maybe more important thing is it looks like He's just crying out, seeing these chariots and horsemen, just like I would have said, whoa, chariots and horsemen, you know, just like that. But actually, this same thing is said to Elisha by King Joash in chapter 13, verse 14, when Elisha is on his deathbed. And he's weeping or Joash is weeping over the loss of Elisha. And he says the same thing to him. So this is actually a declaration. You are the chariots of Israel. You are the horsemen. Uh, and what, what's being said here, in fact, these are in the singular. So if you wanted to try to translate that into English, you'd say, You, Elijah, are the chariotry and the calvary of Israel. Why would he say that? Well, it's a way to say that he is, he is the great protector of the land. The prophet, the word of God is the army of God. It's not kings that ultimately protect the, uh, Israel. It is the power and defense of Israel belongs to his prophet who proclaims the word. It's the word. And the prophet who stands for that word and lives out that word. To have the prophet is to have the army of God. And so Elisha says this of Elijah. And then later Joash says this of Elisha. Showing that he truly does have the spirit of Elijah. And so Elisha 
even as Joash calls him the, the father uh, later, it shows that he is now, he becomes through this event, the new father to the prophets. And he continues to manifest the presence and the power of Yahweh, as the prophets saw Elijah strike the water, then they see Elisha come back and strike the water. And they realize the same spirit rests on Elisha. We were all concerned about the loss of Elijah, but the same spirit rests on Elisha. We didn't lose anything in that sense, you see. God is still with us. And so when Christ was about to leave and he was speaking of this and it, and it caused the disciples great angst to hear that Christ was leaving. But he said, I will not abandon you and you will do greater works than I have done. It will not be a loss. It will be a gain. So that the church is empowered by the spirit in the absence of Christ. We embody God's presence in the world. Elisha was a kind of reanimation of Elijah. And we have the life and spirit of Christ. And so we become a kind of reanimation of Christ. That is, his life is in us and therefore his works and his love is accomplished through his people in this world. And so we could say that Jesus is really the chariot and horseman of the people of God. But as he fills us with his spirit, because he goes to war with us, as he said, I will be with you as he was leaving. He said, I will be with you. And because he is with us and because he fills us with his spirit, Brothers and sisters, you become kind of the mobile throne and horse, war horse of the living God on earth. That's who the people of God are. We are God's force to be reckoned with in this world. A force of good and of love and of righteousness. Because the life of God is in us through the Holy Spirit. This is a wonderful preview, a wonderful analogy of the way God carries out his work, even though Elijah is gone. And then you, you up that infinitely in a way of thinking, what will we do when Jesus is gone? And yet there is a small group of people who believed in Jesus, who believed in the true God when Jesus was on earth. Look at the multitudes spread throughout the whole world. Indeed, as he says, you will do greater works than I've done. These are still Christ's works, but he's chosen to do them through his people. And we must expect him to be doing this in our individual lives, in the church's life, looking to see what God will do again and again in his church. And so this succession from Elijah to Elisha shows, one, that God's power is not tied to a particular era, a particular era or time. It recalls Moses and Joshua, and it shows us that shows here that the God of Moses and Joshua, Moses uh, split the Red Sea, Joshua the Jordan, well, here it is again. 
same mighty God with Elijah and Elisha. The God you read about here is the contemporary God. He is your God. He is the acting God in this world. The same purpose of salvation. And that's why Jesus, when he's teaching us us about prayer, says to believe in what God will do in your life and in the church. Because with God, all things are possible. That's what Jesus says to us. Believe in what God will accomplish because there's nothing impossible for God. Is that the God you pray to? Is that the God that you acknowledge and, and praise and exalt in your prayer? The God for, with whom nothing is impossible? These events are not in Scripture just that we can admire what God did a long time ago. As Paul writes in Romans 15, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So we're to have hope in this God who is now with us. This this God we see displayed in the scripture. He is my God. He is your God. He is the God who is pouring out his power into our lives. He is the God to whom we pray. So... His power is not confined to one era, and his power is not tied to a particular person. So the question really is answered wonderfully here, isn't it? What will we do now that Elijah is no longer with us? We don't look to Elijah, we look to the God of Elijah, right? Not to Elijah, but the God of Elijah. Our help is in the name of the Lord who never leaves us or forsakes us. God's leaders will eventually exit the scene, but God's power continues to endure to his people. And so it was with the disciples. So his power is not tied to a particular leader, a particular nation, a particular political party. And while we may be ashamed or grieved over the presidential campaign, you may be as I am, God is not wringing his hands and picking out of one eye, just dreading what's going to happen. He's not. He is infinitely happy in how he is going to work all things together for the good of his people. Unlimited in his joy over what he is going to do for his people, no matter what the circumstances are. And that never changes. And for us personally, we have to believe in that commitment of God and that great power of God. That when things just absolutely, traumatically fall apart for us, that we always recognize, I don't know how and I don't know why and I don't see how it's going to work even. But God's commitment to make me like Christ, to open up his beauty more and more to me, to enable me to manifest his goodness in this world, it will never stop. And this must in some way be playing its part in his commitment to do me good. And nothing, nothing will change that. It's, it's amazing to see the sons of the prophets here that, that are revealed in chapter 2. You don't even know they're around. And here they are in Jericho, a once destroyed and cursed city built back in rebellion against God. And where does God have his church? 
there in Jericho. And in Bethel, 80 years given over to the worship of the golden bull. And where do you find his church? Right there in Bethel. Right there in the heart of the rebellion. There is God's church. God always continues his grace to his church. He's always keeping the germinating, flourishing seed of his word going. He's always on the move, always making his next move. (laughs) That's the way I, I think about God. He's always making his move. Always. And when things seem to fall apart, we think, what am I going to do now? God is making his powerful move to do good to you, to accomplish great things for you. And so I love what Lightheart says here. God, Yahweh raises faithful communities in the northern kingdom, a renewed church movement within the mainline church of the golden calf. Eeks. <laughs> That's not to say anything particular about anybody, but he's just making the point, you see, that right there in the church of the golden calf in the northern kingdom, God is planting his renewal movement. And so, God, we mustn't discount what God will do, even under the shadow of tyranny and persecution We must not discount who God may bring to himself, what peoples he may bring to himself, where he will next plant his church and make it flourish. And certainly that has to undergird our efforts in planting churches in Fort Worth, that God is on the move to draw his people to himself. If he's going to do it right here in Bethel and Jericho, why not Fort Worth, right? Why not Fort Worth? Well, finally, we see God's uh, manifest, the, the manifestation of his continuing grace, both in the miracle of the water in Jericho. And I just want to say that this kind of miracle, as all the miracles do, as even the healing miracles of Jesus, they anticipate the new creation. They anticipate when he will restore all things and make them perfect. And this anticipates that by the renewal of the waters uh, there at Jericho, anticipating the renewal of the whole earth one day. And isn't it amazing that this city that was under a curse and that was rebuilt in rebellion now receives the blessing of grace? Jericho. Why Jericho? It comes out of nowhere. And how encouraging when we see ourselves in our rebellion and we have brought sin upon sin upon ourselves. That which is, seems too good to be true. He wants to show us grace. He wants to manifest his goodness. Then finally, this manifestation of God's presence through judgment. And this was a harder one, right? To hear about the bears. Now, there's a far side. You can get this on a coffee cup, actually. You can get it. I saw it online. You can get this on a coffee cup. So, here's a guy with a crazed look. And he's holding a smoking rifle. 
you're looking at it. Okay, he's on the other side of the table. There's a table, and there are two legs sticking up on that side of the table, a woman's and a man's legs. He's obviously just shot them, okay? And he's just sitting there like this, crazy, you know, having shot them. And in the understatement of the, in the, the, the greatest understatement in the history of comics, his wife scolds him and points her finger to him. He says, that settles it, Carl. From now on, you're only getting decaffeinated coffee. <laughs> Almost as though this has just happened too many times. I've warned you, I'm putting my foot down. <laughs> no, more ca- de- no more caffeinated coffee. The reason I say that is Davis, Ralph Davis says how often people and commentators, and here's what he says, are aghast at how humorless Elisha is, like he can't take a joke, okay? Like, oh yeah, boom, you know? Or just how uh, savage he is. And then he has this line, perhaps if Elisha had had decaffeinated coffee, he wouldn't have been so edgy that morning, right? Almost as though this is what's going on. Man, you got off on the wrong side, up on the wrong side of the bed. Two little, little kids run out and say a few things and you just smoke them like that. Okay. Well, first of all, this, uh, they, they're in Bethel, the center of bull worship. Okay. And their mockery reflects their own parents' hostility. I was shocked in, uh, many times in seeing the pictures of African-Americans being persecuted in diners in the 60s, how young the white people are, like teenagers, just mocking, treating them in a horrible way. Well, also, 20, this, this term, which is translated young boys, can also be young men, like the young men that fought with Abram. Or Jacob is a young man when he's pursuing Rachel. Or the spies that went into Jericho were young men. So it could be 12 to 30 years old. They even could be uh, the priests of the shrine. But they're crying. They, they come out of the city. It's not just he's walking through. The they come out in a specific way. And they basically tell him, you can go wherever Elisha went. Or maybe you could just get on down the road. You just leave, make yourself scarce. We hate you, we despise you, we reject you. And you have to bear in mind that the bears are the same as Elijah, who Keith talked about last week, called fire out of heaven to consume the soldiers. But as Dr. Davis says again, these were covenant bears. Okay? These were covenant bears. Because in Leviticus 26, he's outlining the blessings if you obey, the curses if you don't obey. It begins with this, uh, don't, don't make for yourself an image like they had done in Bethel. And then you get down to verse 22 and it says, If you disobey, I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children. Covenant unfaithfulness in the face of God, idolatry. And now the covenant curse being brought upon them. And bear in mind, this is simply the preview of what God will do against the whole nation. As the whole nation, this is just, this is systemic to the nation as they all are cursing and mocking God 
at the end of Second Chronicles, summarizing the final destruction of Israel, it says, They kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of God rose against his people. In that case, it's Nebuchadnezzar that's the bear. It's Nebuchadnezzar that mauls the whole nation. Well, think of Jesus, how he was mocked. He said they mocked him as they beat him. They mocked him on the cross saying, come down, save yourself. Even the high priests mocked him saying, oh, you're the son of God. Come on, save yourself. Even the, the thieves on both sides mocked him and ridiculed him. And it is true that Jerusalem was destroyed even as it had been earlier because of this rejection of God. And how frightening to mock and ridicule one who has come to save you. One who has come to rescue you at such a great cost to himself. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus promised to take one of those thieves to paradise with him that day. Jesus has mercy on mockers. <laughs> he has mercy on those who mock him even. Those who ridicule him and despise him. He even cried out in the midst of that mockery, Oh Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Whatever it is, whatever it is that you have done against God, he is willing Eager to forgive you and to welcome you and to take away your sins. He was dying for their sins. Some of them who would later believe as they mocked him. Don't you mock him by rejecting him. You may say, well, I don't mock Jesus. If you refuse him, and that's the greatest mockery you could ever give against him. To refuse him and say, with all that you have cost yourself, I don't want you. I will not have you. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we pray your grace upon us as we seek to grapple with your glory, your love, your continued grace and power to your church that will not be stopped no matter what. Bless us to this end, we pray. Amen.